Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Why are all men without excuse? Verse 21. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. This is the reason that verse 20 concludes with the words, so that they are without excuse. The reason was given in front of that statement, and it's given behind that statement for you to know that God has revealed enough of Himself to them, and they have enough abilities left within them, that they can know that there is a God with eternal power and a Godhead, but they will not worship Him, they will not give Him glory, they will not be thankful for the things He has done for them, so they are without excuse when God will pour out His wrath upon them in the great day of wrath that is coming. This is the explanation for how and why the Gentiles are without excuse before God. Here is creation and here is providence. Creation is specifically mentioned in verse 20. And here in verse 21, we also have God's providence mentioned. That's a word that we don't use much anymore. We use creation a whole lot more than providence. God's providence is His government of the world that results in favor or chastening in your life. If it rains on a given day, that's God's providence. If it doesn't rain the next day, that is also God's providence. If one nation defeats another nation in battle, that's God's providence. It has nothing to do with their militaries. Sometimes you can see the military, the military superiority of one nation versus another, but it's the decrees of God that are being fulfilled by His providence. That's why you can see sometimes that paupers are raised to be princes, and princes are put down in the dunghill. This is why a Hannah can be raised up, and her son can be the leader of Israel, and Peninnah can have numerous children that amount to nothing. It's God's providence. But His providence is a witness that He's left in the world that shows His goodness to us. And so we don't want to forget it. And while the word providence isn't in verse 21, these words are, Neither were thankful. Thankful for what? Just the creation? There's something more that He does that He's left as a witness, and that's His providence. When He fills our hearts with food and gladness. Because the Apostle Paul explained to a bunch of idolaters in Acts chapter 14 something one step beyond creation. Every time you have a harvest and you bring in that huge harvest and fill your barns and are able to sit down and do a reckoning as a southern farmer would, do an accounting as to what's in that barn, and then you have a feast because you've got so much plenty You have a Thanksgiving day, except they call it Turkey Day. For them, it's a day of unusual Thursday NFL football games. They are not thankful to the God of heaven. When they are thankful, they're thankful for stupid things like this. They're thankful for our firemen for putting out fires. They're thankful for our policemen for stopping crime. They're thankful for our soldiers for going to war and dying for us. That's not what Thanksgiving is about. That's what Veterans Day is about. That's what Independence Day is about. That's what Fireman's Day is about. That's what your Secretary's Day is about. It's thanks to God. They're not thankful to Him. 
and there's so little thanksgiving to God. When you read the old proclamations of our Continental Congress and the presidents of our country back a few generations, they knew that they were thankful to God for everything that they had achieved. George Washington would thank God for the military successes of his battered, ragged, poorly supplied farmers who were fighting for the independence of our country. They would be thankful for enough food to eat through the year. They would be thankful for the forgiveness of sins. They would be thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ in our country. They were thankful for all those things. There are two things that I want you to get out of verse 21, and it's that the wicked do not give God glory that is due Him because He's a glorious God, and they're not thankful for the things He does for them. In case... You're not familiar with Acts 14, but I have turned you there a couple of times in the last year. Turn to Acts chapter 14. It's only a few pages back in your Bibles because I want you to see Paul stating this second aspect of God's presence in the world. The first one is creation. Somebody had to make the sun. Somebody had to make the stars. Somebody had to make the immensity of the universe. And that immensity makes us very small and insignificant, and it makes its creator very great. That's the creation. But there's another element, and that is that God is good. Not just that He has eternal power and that He has a Godhead, but that part of that Godhead is His goodness. In Acts chapter 14, as Paul is trying to stop some pagans from worshiping him and Barnabas, he says in verse 15, Sirs! Why do ye these things? And I know I've read this to you before. I don't want you to forget it. I am pounding several things. Creation, providence, conscience, revelation. Those are the four ways that God's revealed himself to us. We're accountable for more than pagans. Those are four ways that God can can condemn us to hell. Creation didn't cause us to repent. Or if it did, it should have caused us to repent. Providence should have caused us to repent. Conscience should cause us to repent. Revelation should cause us to repent. But there's a fifth factor in our condemnation, and that's Adam. Our race had the perfect specimen picked to be our race's representative. God made the choosing, gave him one commandment in a perfect world, and he sinned. So for f- on five bases, and you know Romans chapter 5 is going to bring in number 5, but on five bases we are condemned before God. Therefore, we need a Savior. We need a second Adam that will be our representative and undo all that the first Adam did and clothe us with his righteousness and take our unrighteousness upon him in our violation of the four ways that God has spoken to us. I, that's why I keep repeating myself. This one is providence. Sirs, why do ye these things? Paul, speaking to idolaters. We also are men of like passions with you. Don't try to worship us. We put our pants on the same way you do. We're subject to the same human emotions that you are. We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. Do you notice the mention of creation constantly in the Bible? Verse 16, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. He didn't come and judge them immediately for having their foolish religions. But he did make the heavens and the earth, and you should have been able to figure it out from that. And then this second witness that's in verse 17. 
though he allowed nations without directly interfering in their religions, he left not himself without witness. God left a witness in the world. He left a testimony. He left a declaration of what he was like. In that, he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Brother Gerald and I were talking at break time about how much a previous generation or the generation before that would understand about some of these things and it wouldn't need, we wouldn't have to work so hard to communicate it. But a farmer with maybe only a few years of formal education would be, is able to recognize God's providence and God's creation in everything that he does right. in his livestock, in his agricultural, in, the, in his plants, in his fields, in the rain, in the sunshine. He would see all that. And notice here, God is good. When the Bible says love your enemies, it doesn't mean you have to get warm and fuzzy feelings toward them. It means can you do as well as the Lord does, at least he sends his sunshine, his rain on them. The Lord's going to judge them in the end. But in the meantime, he gives them some sunshine and rain. And so the Bible says if you want to be just like him, if you find him hungry, feed him. Find him thirsty, give him something to drink. If you find him naked, you know, put something on him. Pray for him. If he curses you, bless him. If he smites you on one cheek, turn to him the other and walk away. But the Lord does that to the whole human family. He's left himself a witness. You know, the world says, your church isn't much of a witness. Well, listen, we've got a universal witness done by God himself. Creation and providence right here. Do you notice the word that is chosen? Can you find a place in the Bible where we're supposed to go out and be witnesses? You say, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Yes, that's 11 apostles. And it says to wait in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. When the service is over, I will let you come to the pulpit. We'll move the pulpit out of the way and you can demonstrate to us your power. Because that verse doesn't apply to you and you can't even squeeze yourself into it. Because I haven't heard about anybody that wants to start in Jerusalem and then preach in Judea and then go to Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the world. But that's what Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 says. And I just got off on a short rabbit trail. But we all need to remember those things. There's a witness, and it's by God himself. He witnesses every morning when that sun comes up, and he has the gift of tongues like you have never imagined. There is no language or speech on earth where his words are not heard clearly from that creation. And then he gives a witness of the goodness of a, a good meal. When you feel good after a good meal, do you know what? We ought to have prayers at the end of meals as much as we do prayers at the beginning of meals. To th- we bless God to start the meal, but we should thank God at the end of the meal. And sometimes I know in this church we do that, but truly we ought to do it because that good warm feeling you have that makes you want to look for a nice rug spot or a comfortable couch and take a little nap, that is from the God of heaven. He's filled your hearts with food and gladness. And if you've had a glass or two of Cabernet, your heart's filled with even more gladness. So you have another reason to thank Him. We should. Do you know how many people have been hungry in this world? We don't know what hunger is. Except when we're on a diet to undo the damage done by overeating. That's the only hunger we know. Neither were thankful. Verse 21, here's why they're without excuse. Because that when they knew God, 
We've already considered that from verses 18, 19, and 20. They did know Him because God showed Himself unto them. When they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. They did not give Him the glory that was due unto His name. And I want to say to you and to me, this church had better do one thing every time it assembles. It better give glory to God. Because we know more about God and His glory and the glory that He seeks than these pagans for sure. All they see is the sun and know that it's a glorious heavenly body and there must be a more glorious creator that put it there. But we know far beyond that. We know that God has shown his glory in the Lord Jesus Christ coming to die for his enemies and rescuing them from their just condemnation and not just to return them to a position of neutrality or innocence, but to make them his sons by adoption. To, to receive an eternal inheritance of God Himself and everything He has. Do you know how rich we're going to be in heaven? Forbes ain't going to get it right. right. Forbes will not be able to put us into the richest 400 men of the world when we're in heaven. The poorest of us. You know how much glory He deserves for that? That He sent His Son to die for you, His enemy? And make you His Son? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that he was rich, but he came poor, that through his poverty ye might be made rich. That's a pretty good story. I speak as a fool. That's the opposite of hyperbole. What's the opposite of hyperbole? It's a figure of speech of understating a fact. That's a pretty good story. It's incredible. And we owe God glory for it. See, I don't want you to just know the doctrine of that 21st verse. I want you to take something home with you. Are you giving God enough glory in your life? Do you speak His praise? Do you give Him thanks verbally and in your heart? Do you love to sing about His glory? Do you love to hear Him exalted and lifted up? Do you want to be around His people? Do you appreciate His Word? Does His Word excite you? Do His people excite you? And the work of grace He does in people's lives. This is what we want for all of us. They became vain... Neither were thankful. There's two things here. They didn't give God glory and they weren't thankful. Those two things are capital crimes. What's a capital crime? A crime for which you get capital punishment. What's capital punishment? Your death. If you don't give God glory and you're not thankful for the things He gives you, you die once, that's your physical death, and that's really nothing. But then you get to die again when you're cast into the lake of fire and it's called the second death. That's a capital crime. And the two capital crimes in verse 21 are not giving God glory and not being thankful. Lord, help us to be thankful. But became vain in their imaginations. They began imagining that they would like a more suitable religion than the one that they got a little bit of some knowledge of by looking at the sun, hearing about the flood, watching a city burned up with brimstone from heaven, their imagination went to work that that God seemed a little rough. So let's paint the great big granddaddy that's on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in Rome that looks like a senile old man on a cotton candy cloud, and maybe he'll give us a piece of candy. Let's make that God. Let's make Dagon God, because when I make Dagon God, and we pick part of the population to be the priests of Dagon, and we support them, They say all these nice things to us and they tell us that Dagon is happy and that we're going to have a great harvest 
and that our sons can go off to battle because Dagon has said they're all going to come back safe. Whether it's Dagon or Hirohito, it's a lie. It's because it's the imagination of men. And they have imagined a religion that's more compatible with their lifestyle than the one of the Bible. They've imagined a God that's a little gentler than the one of the Bible. Except God will never let them have that desire of their hearts. Because, and we've mentioned this many times before, the gods of the pagans required your children as their sacrifices. Child sacrifice when our religion sacrificed his child for us. That's a huge difference. They became vain in their imaginations. Those imaginations that are under consideration here in verse 21 are idolatry. They came up with idols. They, they thought they would worship the sun instead of the creator of the sun. They would worship the moon instead of the sun that gave the moon the only light that it had by way of reflection and the creator of the sun that gave the moon its light. They would worship the creature more than the creator, as verse 25 is going to tell us. They became vain. Vain is empty, profitless, worthless. They became vain in their imaginations. And brethren, there are imaginations strong at work today in so-called Christian circles as they corrupt Christianity to be totally different than what the Bible teaches. And that's a secondary application of this warning here in Romans 1.21 to you and me. They became vain in their imaginations. They imagined that they could worship God through a creature or through an object, through a statue, through a totem pole, through the sun, through the stars, through an insect, through a dog, through a bird, and that that was as acceptable to God. And as soon as they made that choice in their imagination that they weren't going to worship God, he blinded their hearts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. When you read their foolish heart was darkened, heart, singular, is a collective noun for all men's hearts. Was darkened is a passive verb construction, meaning someone else darkened that heart. God darkened that heart. When Jesus spoke in parables, the disciples said, Jesus, why are you speaking in parables? They can't understand because it is not given to them to understand. They have rejected my prophets long enough, and now I'm going to hold the truth from them so that they can't hear it, can't see it, can't understand it, and be converted, and I should heal them. He blinds men. I turned you to passages last Lord's Day where he would blind Israelites even to offer their children in sacrifice from Ezekiel chapter 20 and verses 25 and 26 because they didn't want to keep the commandments he gave them. He gave them some other commandments that they wanted to keep more than his commandments and those commandments were bad commandments to sacrifice their own children. Here's the horrible thing. When your foolish heart is darkened by God, you don't know it. We know it. Because all of a sudden you are acting strange. You don't care about the things of God. And you think you're doing just fine. And it can happen to any of us. If you give sin a place in your life and you leave it there, and God comes and warns you and reminds you about your sin, and you don't repent of it and reform your life, He can blind your heart and mind so that you will not even know that you've become a Saul. And you're no longer even in the same universe as a David. Deceit, deception of the heart and blinding of the heart is horrible. You think you know everything and you know nothing. Because Jesus has said, I will take from you what you think you know. I will get down to the very bottom of what you think you know and I'll take it from you. And I will give to those that have. That's why we're supposed to take heed to how we hear the word of God. And what we're going to do when we walk out of this assembly like we have walked out of assemblies for many years. 
Lord, have mercy on us to give him glory and to be thankful and to keep our imaginations under control. Do you know what my purpose is as a preacher according to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 through 6? It is to make war against your imagination. He's made war with mine for the last six days, using that figuratively. He's made war with mine already. Now it's my job to make war with yours. Casting down imaginations and every high thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Jesus Christ. That is what's supposed to happen in a pulpit. There's supposed to be warfare going on between God's precious word because the man in the pulpit is God's ambassador. And he is going right after your heart to shut down your thoughts, your imaginations, and bring them all into agreement with the word of God. That's what every king wants. Every king wants every subject and citizen in his empire to be in total agreement with what he's doing. And this is how God does it in his kingdom. First of all, he changes our hearts, bless and praise his holy name. But then he sends the word of God. It is to be preached to make war against your imaginations. And I've already called on you once today to hate your imaginations. Your imaginations are dangerous and evil. And you should not be thinking about how religion should work. You should be thanking God for the way it does work. You shouldn't be thinking of how things could be different. Thank God for the way things are. If you'll be thankful for the way things are, God will make them better. And it works a whole lot better than when you try to make them better. Of course, there are times where we are supposed to put forth our use of secondary means to keep God's commandments. But I'm talking about the general problem that we have. It's too much thinking and not enough thanking. Verse 22 says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. The Apostle Paul had to get in here, the learned, educated, in, intelligent ones of his generation, primarily the Greeks. Remember, they were compared to the, to the unwise in chapter, earlier in this chapter, the wise versus the unwise, the, the Greeks versus the barbarians. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Men, when they know there's a God and make the choice, I am not going to humble myself before that God, they become fools. And they end up worshiping the sun, the moon, a horse, a dog, or they make a totem pole because they've got some leftover wood after they heat themselves and cook their food. That's what Isaiah 44, 9 through 20 teaches. What will they do with the residue of the wood? They've cooked their food. They've warmed themselves. The Bible's pretty plain, isn't it? Did you enjoy reading Isaiah 44? Amen. Ah, is that in the Bible? Ah, is it in the Bible? Ah, man, I got these leftovers. What am I going to do with this leftover wood over here? Hey, I'll carve some ears on it in a snooter and we'll pray to it and say, save us from all our troubles. We'll make it a God. And you know, in school, all they want to show you is look at how beautiful the totem poles were of these Indian tribes. Pagan devil worshipers. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says that it wasn't a piece of wood being worshipped. It certainly wasn't God being worshipped. 1 Corinthians 10 says very clearly the Gentiles don't know what they're worshipping. They're worshipping the devil himself. Because the devil himself sowed that seed in their minds that they could worship a piece of wood painted with some berry juice. And if we hadn't brought them a little bit of light by God's blessing through the gospel, they'd still be picking berries and grinding it in a bowl and painting it on a piece of wood. They'd be painting one of our telephone poles and making it into a totem pole. Does that mean we look down on Indians because they were so ignorant? God made that choice. And if it wasn't for God's grace, you'd be dumber than they were. That's 
you'd be worshiping the buffalo chips instead of just heating by them. We can never get haughty in ourselves because by ourselves we are nothing. But we are not going to be apologetic for God's grace either. We are going to rejoice and give Him glory. Was Israel supposed to apologize that God had blessed them more than the Philistines? No way. They were supposed to celebrate. They danced on the shore of the Red Sea at how waterlogged bodies of Egyptians floated or didn't float. Romans 1, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. What's a lesson we can take from this? It's the first word, professing. Don't talk about your wisdom. Don't talk about your abilities. Tell God how foolish you are. Tell others how foolish you are and He'll lift you up. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Listen to these words. 1 Corinthians 3, 18. Let no man deceive himself. Do you think that's possible? Do you think that's probable? Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. Do you know the best way to pray? Lord, I'm a fool. Do you know the best thing you can tell someone else? I'm a fool. So that you can be wise. Verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, The Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. When Solomon came to the Lord, he didn't say, Thank you, Lord, for giving me the wisdom that I've got. I'd like a little bit more. He said, I'm I'm as dumb as a little child. And by dumb, I don't mean unable to speak, but I'm as stupid, I'm as uneducated, I'm as poorly taught, I'm as poorly prepared to be king as a little child is what he meant. Help me. Did the Lord love that prayer? The Lord loves that prayer. Did, Did David ever say something like this? My eyes are not... Lofty, nor my, uh, my, uh, my, uh, here's how you do it. Thankfully, I can remember this. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Notice that attitude. That is a great attitude. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. There is no shame in saying, I'm not sure. I don't know. I know God knows. But they profess themselves to be wise. They come down with their religion and they make it absolute that you have to keep their religion. We're talking about state churches and I don't mean the Episcopal Church in England. I mean the worship of Dagon in Philistia. I mean the worship of Allah in Muslim countries. You will keep their religion. They profess themselves to be wise. They overthrow any other religion, and you will worship God our way. The Roman Catholic Church has said for a thousand years there is no salvation outside the Catholic Church. We say there's no salvation outside the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a safe place for us to go. Verse 23, they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. They profess themselves to be wise because they let their imagination start to run wild. Do you know how nice it would be if we here in Athens built this beautiful white structure with Greek columns in front and where we could worship our God our way and it could be our national religion? And, and other nations of the earth will look at this, we'll put it on a mountaintop, and we'll make it beautiful. We'll call it the Acropolis. You know, we'll just do these wonderful things and have this wonderful religion. As soon as their imagination started that, God blinded their hearts, and they ended up worshiping images. 
Did you read in Isaiah 44 where the, the smith and the craftsman take a compass and planes and take a raw piece of material and carve it into the figure of a man? And it's a beautiful man. It's a beautiful looking man, but it is a piece of stone. Then they erect it and they fall down in front of it. How can you get that dumb? And do you know how the Lord makes fun of them in Isaiah 44 if you read? He gets tired. The poor guy that's working so hard with his planes on this surface of this raw material, he gets thirsty. This is God ridiculing him. He has to go get himself a drink. Well, if the creator of this thing is getting tired and needs a drink, what about the dumb thing that he's making? This is the God of heaven. They change the glory of the uncorruptible God. What does the word uncorruptible mean? He lives forever. He has eternal power. Versus the corruptible image of a man. What is one thing we know about men? They're all going to die. They're going to die and they're going to corrupt. But God is from everlasting to everlasting. They take the glory of the incorruptible God who cannot die, will not die. And do you know he loves this fact about himself? I lift up my right hand to heaven and swear I live forever. Deuteronomy 32. He is the immortal God. He never dies. Do you know most of their gods die? Because they're trying to emulate the gospel story of the Lord Jesus Christ dying. He died in His human nature and came back and is glorified at the right hand of heaven. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like two corruptible man. It may look like Diana. It may look like Isis. It may look like Mary. Although they have no idea what Mary looked like. And to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. The ibis, a famous bird in Egypt. They've worshipped it for millennia. Why do they worship the ibis? Because the ibis likes to eat crocodile eggs and snake eggs. And if the ibis didn't eat crocodile eggs and snake eggs, snakes and crocodiles would overrun that place. And so they're, they're thankful to this bird for eating the eggs of crocodiles and snakes. And so they have a whole religion. You go punch in Ibis worship in your Google search engine, you'll be amazed. There's websites dedicated to it today. Ibis worship. It's a bird religion. Can you imagine worshiping a bird? What do we say about birds? He's as dumb as a bird. He's got a bird brain. But they worship birds. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, guess where we'd be? I'd be as prostrate as you guys laid out before that thing. Oh, holy Ibis, save us and our children. Look at this. They took the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like two corruptible man. Do you think they found dead Ibis birds around the nation of Egypt? Yes. But God had, had blinded their hearts, darkened their hearts, and there they were doing they were worshiping something that they knew was very corruptible. And four-footed beasts, think golden calf. And creeping things, think Ezekiel chapter 8, where God called Ezekiel into the temple. And he said, look what these men are worshiping. And they were worshiping insects in the temple of God in Ezekiel chapter 8. The people of God worshiping insects. Bug worship. Do you know what we do to bugs? Yes. Sorry, Joshua. That's what we do to bugs. But they worship bugs. We have a creator God that made bugs. And those bugs would be a whole lot friendlier if we in the Garden of Eden hadn't messed things up. We're the one that have met, has messed up this planet. By His grace, He's forgiven us. And we're about to celebrate the glory of the incorruptible God giving a body 
to the Lord Jesus Christ that was also incorruptible, and it did not see corruption. But it was raised from the grave and sits at God's right hand, a body. And we shall see him, and we shall hold him, and we shall celebrate with him for all of eternity. We have a glorious religion. And brethren, all of this is to bring us back to the fact that verses 16 and 17 were put in front of all this because we have been saved by the power of God through Jesus Christ our Lord and clothed with His righteousness so that as Paul was going to take that church at Rome and take them right down, what I say, into hell, take them right down into hell, a view of hell, because this is where all mankind is under condemnation of creation, providence, conscience, and revelation. But before he did that, he gave us two comforting verses, 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. It takes some power to undo all this. The power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. It takes God's power to get us to believe. Because look at this. Nobody, they won't believe. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. God makes us just by putting his righteousness upon us, and then we live. It doesn't say we get just or we get life by faith. It says that's how we live. We just believe the precious things that God's told us that he's done for us. Bless and praise his holy, glorious name. Amen. What's in these six verses? God's wrath. All impiety and immorality will be judged. We are accountable for truth. We had better be sensitive to God's promptings. All mankind is guilty. We had better recognize God wherever he shows himself to us. He is jealous with a capital J for his glory. He expects thankfulness from us. His goodness ought to lead us to repentance, not to complacency. Our imaginations are dangerous. Blinding is horrible because you'll never know it. There is a great danger of confidence or arrogance in our understanding of anything. Images are an abomination to him, and all of it should make us and bind us to give thanks always to God for from the beginning choosing us to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Amen.